Good to see you here today. My name is Jared Doe, and I grew up in this church, and I am now a pastor, and it's good to be here uh, today. If you want to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, we're going to spend pretty much all of our time in Romans 1 today. Uh, That'd be great. Uh, In the fourth century, the fourth century, there was a distinguished philosopher and teacher named Augustine, uh, who was wrestling with uh, the question of the truthfulness of Christianity. And Augustine was a brilliant and attractive uh, young man, and with his position came all sorts of temptations, and so Augustine kind of early on lived this immoral life, and he writes about it in a book called Confessions. Augustine also tells the story of the day that his life changed forever. Augustine talks of uh, a time where he's up in Milan, Italy, and he's, he's walking through one of his friend's gardens, And as he's walking, he runs into this group of children who are singing a song. And the words of the song were, tole lege, tole lege, which means take and read. And Augustine had never heard that song before, so Augustine decided that this song for the children must be a message from God. Take and read. The only thing he could think to do was to run and find the nearest Bible. And so he goes and he finds a Bible and he opens up to Romans, this book of Romans. And he reads through these passages and he talks about in this moment God meets him in the book of Romans and speaks to him. And his life is transformed. When he finishes reading a certain passage in Romans, uh, he he says this. He says, By a light, as it were, of security infused into my heart, all the gloom of doubt was vanished away. God got a hold of his heart in Romans. Security infused into his heart, and all doubt vanished away. I want to turn to the book of Romans today because Romans is a very powerful book. It's written by the Apostle Paul uh, early and uh, probably early first century, probably sometime around 58 AD from the town of Corinth. And and Paul wrote, as you know, a lot of the New Testament, he wrote a lot of letters to churches, but Romans is unique because as Paul writes to Romans, he's actually never been to Rome. He's never seen the church that's in Rome. And oftentimes when he's writing letters, he's writing to communities where he knows people. But with Rome, he's not sure uh, if he's even going to make it there. He wants to go and visit the church there, but he's not sure if that's going to happen. So he carefully crafts this letter to Rome, to the church in Rome. And as he writes... Every single word is on point. Paul understands that what he is writing might be his only message to the church in Rome. And so many scholars and theologians say that Rome is is Paul's best work. Every word is on point. It's his masterpiece. In Rome, the book, uh, the, the letter to Rome, you have Paul's Christology, and you have this unbelievable uh, explanation of who God is, what God is up to in this world, and what that means for his church. So as we turn to Rome, uh, to the book of Romans, I want to open up with this introduction and keep this in mind, these powerful words. And as Paul writes, I want to hone in on just one little phrase in the introduction to Romans. Romans 1.7, Paul kind of introduces himself, and then he says this. He says, to the church in Rome, those who are loved by God, and called to be saints. 
Paul writes to Rome and he says two things those who, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Paul establishes identity and calling in this book. When he writes to the church in Rome, identity that you are a group of people who are loved by God and calling. As a group of people who are loved by God, you were called to be saints. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he opens with this phrase, to those in Rome loved by God and called to be saints. Identity and calling is uh, something that must be understood for the follower of Jesus. And when it comes to McDowell Mountain, the identity calling is the same here. You, McDowell Mountain, are loved by God. God loves you so much. And you were called to be a particular kind of people. Identity and calling is also uh, important for me because growing up in this church, much of my identity and calling was developed in this community of people. My identity and calling as a follower of Jesus, one who's loved by God, and eventually becoming a pastor developed here. So it's an honor to be here to talk about identity and calling because for me, without McDowell Mountain, I have no idea where my identity and calling would be. It was developed in this community. My family started to go to McDowell Mountain back in like 1994. It was in our living room. Super fun. Uh, I remember when, when the church was started, uh, I was uh, going into kind of my uh, junior, junior high stage, and so already kind of like a super awkward time in life. Uh, but from the very get-go, uh, McDowell Mountain's youth group started going to uh, junior high camp in Big Bear Lake, California. I think the junior highers just came back from a trip. It's moved to Forest Home. Uh, but it was in that week where I really felt like God became real to me. God got a hold of my heart. I would, have, I would say that, that was where I kind of marked my, uh, my foundation of, of becoming a Christian. Uh, then as I moved to high school uh, and I started to understand what my identity was, being loved by God, a calling started to emerge. And a big part of that calling came around the high school camp. The high schoolers right now, I believe, are in beach camp, uh, beach camp in Los Angeles. And uh, I remember one of the first beach camps, our, our student ministry pastor came and said, we don't have a high school camp, so we're going to let the high schoolers plan it. What do you guys want to do? And we thought, oh, really? We're going to plan it? So we planned the greatest vacation ever. We decided we're going to take a week and go to Malibu, California, and stay at Pepperdine University and just hang out on the beach. And I remember people saying, like, you can't do that. That's not like a real church trip. And, and it, you gotta, and we're like, no, we're, that's what we want to do. And so we go to, every summer we go to the beach in California and we get away. And something amazing happens on that trip. Something that the high schoolers are experiencing right now is that you, you spend time listening to God. And there's this spiritual formation that takes place when you just get away from everything Get away from your routine and experience the beauty of God's creation, the Pacific Ocean. And for me, there was this time of spiritual formation at those camps where we would just sit and listen, and God would speak to us. Then, as I started to feel my call to ministry, uh, when I was about 19 years old, uh, the church decided to let me preach my first sermon. And so uh, I wasn't going to do it alone. They actually let one of my good friends, Michael Fay, preach with me, and so we decided, we're 19 years old, and they said, you could preach on whatever you want. We said, we're 19, I know exactly what we'll preach on. We'll preach on wisdom. 
We'll tell all the adults what wisdom is. And it's kind of like, you know, your freshman year of college, you're never smarter than that year in your life. And, and so Michael and I put together this sermon, and we preached on wisdom. And our sermon on wisdom, we quoted the Spice Girls. It felt like the wise thing to do at the time. Somehow we, we didn't get dragged out of the building and stoned. That's what happened to Jesus on his first sermon. So... Um, but I remember preaching that first sermon with Michael, and then uh, and, and meeting in the high school, and, and from there, uh, going through this, uh, this miraculous uh, land campaign where we ended up in this building. And I remember uh, before they built this, there was this, there was this prayer meeting uh, that we gathered on this land, and we dedicated the land, and we prayed for it. And it was this, uh, it was just this joyful, exciting morning, and, and it was just God was moving, and it was so great until the end of that service, when a young boy named Taylor Bloxon came running out of the desert, and Taylor had been hit in the head by a rock, and he had blood pouring out of everywhere, and so he comes, you know, all the adults are over here, we're gathered, we're praying, it's this great time, and all of a sudden, the screaming kid comes running up, and it's like, oh my goodness, what happened? Uh, looking back at it now, we call that moment the blood offering that the church had to take. <laughs> I was talking to Taylor about it the other day, and I was like, hey, man, do you remember like, when, that, when that happened, when you got hit in the head? And he goes, oh, yes, I remember. And he goes, this may be a coincidence. Not many people know this, but he said, I have a scar on my forehead, and it's shaped the same way as Harry Potter's scar on his forehead. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that's great. He said, yeah, so when I get back from beach camp this week, I'd like everyone to call me the chosen one. That'd be great. <laughs> but I remember we, we, this, this crazy moment with Taylor uh, where he, he cracked his head open playing on this land. And uh, when I think back of kind of how my identity and calling was formed in this community, there were a lot of really exciting things that happened. There were a lot of really hard times. There were stories uh, that are, are nightmarish. There were stories that were unbelievably just this goodness of God that was with us. Growing up here, seeing this church uh, grow, I, I would say there was this moment, almost like Augustine's revelation in my life. It was like God infused this light into my heart, and all doubt of his love vanished away. Being a part of this community, something real about God's love was infused into my heart. This is a place that is loved by God. This is a, a community that is special. It's a community that God has wrapped his arms around. You are loved by God. To be here, to be a part of this, is unique and special. When God when Paul writes about this idea that a church, a local church, is a community that is loved by God. Scripture has a lot to say about God's love. Scripture has a lot to say about it. And, and when we think about this love of God, what, what tends to happen is we, we say it so often and we talk about it so much that it's a phrase that almost can get watered down. We, we just hear it and, oh, oh yeah, God, God loves us. But when you really start to understand God's love, the depth of it, you're grounded in this identity, this identity that is unshakable. Scripture talks about God's love in 1 John 
1 John 4, 8 talks about this idea that God's characteristic is that God is love. God is love. We know John 3.16, the probably more famous passages in Scripture, uh, we see that John 3.16 kind of everywhere, football games, whatnot. But the God, God, he so loved the world. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus into the world. He sent his only son. 1 John 3.16 talks about this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is a self sacrificing love that we belong to. God loves us in such a way. When I started to kind of understand God's love in my life, then my identity is that I was this uh, person that was loved by God. A lot of my theology was developed by uh, an author named C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've read some of C.S. Lewis. As a child, read a lot of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, started to have kind of see how God inter- interacts in the world through the allegory of the Chronicles of Narnia. As I got older, I, I stumbled across this book called The Four Loves. And it talks about the love of God. And, and the, the thing with, when we talk about love, when we talk about God's love, sometimes that word can kind of, uh, we, we, I don't know how serious we take that word. Because for us in our English language, we use the word love about Everything. I, I love my wife, I love my children, and I love tacos. We have one word that describes the same thing, and obviously there's a heavier weight with my love for my wife and children than it is with food. C.S. Lewis talks about how for the Greeks in their language, in the language that this New Testament is written in, they have different words for love. It's a more kind of specific language. So some of you know kind of these, the four loves. We have, you know, storge, which is kind of this empathy bond type of love. There's philia, which is kind of a friendship bond. This also applies to tacos, friendship bond. Uh, Then there's the eros, which is more of like the physical bond of love. It's kind of where we get the word erotic. And then agape, unconditional love. This is the deep, the deepest kind of love. And when... Paul writes to Rome, and he says, you are a church that is loved by God. He uses agape. You're unconditionally loved. You're unconditionally loved. God loves you in such a way that he would die for you. Started to understand this love of God, especially as my wife and I started to have children. Uh, We have three children. We're expecting a fourth we're just kind of always expecting another one. Uh, but, but it was the first time in my life where I think I had loved another person the way God loves. And, and, and obviously I love my wife unconditionally, but you who've had children know that the kind of love that you have for a child when it first, you first hold it, there's this, there's this deeper love where it doesn't matter who this child is or what this child has done or, or how this child makes you feel, you just... You can't help but to love it because it's yours. And this is the kind of love God has for us. We are his children. He loves us in such a way. And our identity starts with that love. We are loved by God. In this letter to Romans, Paul writes this. In Romans chapter 8, he says in Romans 8 that no 
In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor the powers, any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says to Rome, your identity is that you're loved by God. And this love that he has for you. Nothing can separate you from that love. Our identity starts here. I think it's important to understand our identity because we live in a culture uh, we live in a culture that's trying to define us. We're living in a culture uh, that's trying to tell us where identity should lie. And when we have an identity in Christ is that he loves us, we're unshakable. I get in trouble when I start to put my identity in things outside of God. There's a number of things that I put my identity in, and uh, probably, probably top three in my life uh, where I get in trouble is the first is I, I put my identity in uh, how people feel about me. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. It could be a, a great uh, characteristic for a pastor. It could also be a very dangerous characteristic for a pastor. If you guys watch the show The Office, Michael Scott, you know, is this terrible boss. Uh, one of my favorite lines where he's like, it's a great leadership principle. You just want to make everybody happy. It, you can't do that. And the problem for me is when I put my identity in the fact of trying to keep people happy, I just get pulled in all sorts of different directions and it causes, uh, it causes kind of this anxiety. Another thing that I put my identity in that I would say is false is my image. I want people to like me. I want people to think that I'm successful. I want people to think that I have it all together. And so I, I get like a lot of, of my contentment from what people feel about me and my image. This is a false identity. And much like people pleasing, it causes anxiety and stress. And it's this thing that I'm constantly chasing. And something inside of my soul starts to wither when I put my identity in my image. I also put my identity in my security, having a house, uh, having food on the table, and those are good things. Those are things that we need. But when I put all of my identity into those things, I measure my worth by how much money I make, I measure my worth by uh, how much I can provide, and I stop putting my identity in Christ, I stop valuing the things that are truly sustainable. We put our identity in God's love because in God's love, we are unshakable. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So Paul says to those in Rome, your identity is that you are loved by God. And then he says, and you're called to be saints. You're loved by God and you're called to be saints. We hear the word saints, uh, we probably have different images that come to our mind. Uh, for me, I first and foremost go to the football team, New Orleans Saints. But maybe for you, uh, when you hear the word saints, you think of, uh, maybe it's shaped by more of like a, a Catholic background, where you, you, you think of uh, kind of these, these images of these people who historically were, were heroes of the faith. And when you think of saints, you think of these are, these are people that did incredible things for God, and, you know, we can't really ever live up to that. Those are saints, yes. 
But what Paul's talking about here when he's talking to Rome, he's saying, called to be saints, there aren't any saints yet in history. Paul's talking about being a particular people, a certain kind of people. Paul uses this Greek word, hagios, when talking to the saints, when talking about the saints. And hagios literally means set apart. Those who are set apart, those who are holy, those who are reserved for a special work. Paul says you're loved by God, but then you're also called to be a particular people in this world as a church. You're called to be saints. When we think of this word holy, uh, I think this can even be a, a message that, that, that can be confusing or twisted. And so when you think of the word, word holy, you might think as a Christian, you know, I'm not going to drink, smoke, and chew or go with girls who do. There's certain, you know, rules that I have to follow and then everything will be great. But what Paul's talking about is holy, yeah, have boundaries in your life that are healthy. But what he's really talking about is a certain activity of God that we join in as God's people in this world. To be holy, to be set apart, is to join God in his redemptive work in this world. There's an action aspect to being a community of believers, where we, we live and surrender to God's will and actively pursue what he has for us. One of the best books that I've read over the last year was a biography by a man named Eric McTaxis about a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And as a pastor, um, it's kind of fun to read the life of, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer because uh, he was a, a spy, and he lived uh, in uh, Nazi Germany, and he was against Nazi Germany. And so sometimes as pastors, we don't have like really cool heroes to look up to. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them. Because Dietrich Bonhoeffer was counterculture in Nazi Germany, the way that he lived his life. And eventually, Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets killed uh, for speaking up against the regime, and he gets put in prison, and he gets, and he gets uh, killed for his beliefs. But as you look at the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he lived in this culture that had turned against the way that God wanted. And we can obviously, I think we'd all say that, that Nazi Germany is probably one of the darkest times in recent history. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was called to live a certain way amidst the culture. He was set apart. He was saintly. He was holy. Called to live a certain way. Metaxas kind of uh, sums up the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived his life and his theology and what it meant to be a Christian in Nazi Germany. And he says these words. He says, being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing God's will. As Paul is talking to the church in Rome, Rome is one of the most powerful cities on earth. It's the capital of the empire, one of the most powerful empires on earth. This prestigious city, and also the city that was just absolutely corrupt. These followers of Jesus are called to live a certain way in that city that brought life, that brought healing, that brought hope in the midst of a culture of destruction. As a follower of Jesus, you are called to live as a particular type of people in this culture. To return to, return to uh, the first couple of centuries of the church, uh, we find these stories of uh, these churches like the church in Rome that started to work 
inside of communities, inside of cities, uh, to bring about hope and light and love. And we have different stories that come out about what the churches were like in that time. And there's a, a man in the second century named Diognetius. Diognetius was uh, a Roman political official. And uh, as uh, the church started to grow throughout the Roman Empire, he had all sorts of questions about what kind of community is this? Because they're growing rapidly. And so Diognetius had got a hold of another Christian, uh, a Christian philosopher named Methodus. Methodus was uh, extremely smart, it's intellectual. So Diognetius had decided, I'm going I'm to write to this Christian philosopher and find out, like, what is it about this group of people that is so compelling? Why are more and more people joining into this community? What is it that they have that's so compelling? And so Methodus writes back to Diognetius, and he starts to kind of give one of the first uh, apologetic works of Christianity. Start talking about what it means to be a part of this church community and what it means to be set apart in this world and why it's so compelling. And we find in one of these old letters these words. Methodus says, these Christians, they busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what the laws require. They love all men, and by all men are persecuted. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. To put it simply, what the soul is in the body, that the Christians are in the world. What does it mean to be set apart? To have this calling where we're called to be saints? Is it means in this community, in this neighborhood, the life-giving force. Like what a soul is to the body, the church is in the community. You were called to be saints. You were called to be holy. Today as we uh, consider our identity and calling, I think it has huge implications for us individually and corporately. Individually, maybe we have to come to this moment where much like Augustine's revelation, we have, we have this moment where God infuses light into our heart. Maybe today you need to experience that, this, this love of God that just invades your soul. All of the, the, the things that we place our identity in that just rips our soul apart, God comes in and establishes just this anchor that's unshakable. And nothing can separate us from his love. And then a calling. God has placed something in your heart uh, to be lived out. And we live out of calling not to please God, but we live because of this great love story that we're a part of. Each one of you has this calling to be a saint. And it has huge implications for the church community as well. What does it mean to be reminded of the identity of the community of McDowell Mountain? A place uh, that God loves. What does it mean to understand that this is a church that God has wrapped his arms around? What is the calling 
for such a community. In the midst of uh, a season of uncertainty and transition, one thing that doesn't change is your calling, your identity, and your calling. My prayer today is that your identity and calling would be an anchor to your soul in the midst of this season. So Matt's going to come back up, and the man's going to close us in a song. And I want you just to consider these words from Paul. They're true because the way Scripture works, Paul's writing to a certain community, but it transcends just that community. Paul's writing to McDowell Mountain. And he says, you are a community that is loved by God and called to be saints. As we consider identity and calling, we just want to take some time to create space for God to speak to you. And as the band comes up, there's different ways that uh, you have a chance to respond. Um, one of the things that we have here at McDowell Mountain is candle in the back. Maybe today you want to light a candle. I think that's symbolic of this idea of light. In uh, much like Augustine, the light that is infused into your heart. Maybe you've never had this moment where you've experienced God's love, and you need to just come to the candle today and light it and invite God in. And maybe you need to get some stuff out by writing it on a piece of paper and taking it to the cross. And you know that God has called you to be saints, and there's certain things in your life that are hindering you from stepping into that calling. And you need to take it to the cross today. This message has implications for us individually and corporately. Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We love because you first loved us. Lord, we thank you for this great identity that we would be your children that we're no longer slaves, that we're no longer drifting, Lord. But we are loved by you. Lord, we thank you for this calling to be your body, to be the church, to be set apart. And Lord, I just pray that, that this community would hone in on that idea. Understanding that what the soul is to the body, the church is to the world. That you would inspire us today, Lord, to step into the calling. Lord, I just ask that you would reveal things in our heart that hinder us from that. That we would have an encounter with you that's transformative. And that you would use us that you would use us, Lord, in this redemptive plan to bring out restoration and hope. We love you, Lord, and we give you this time. Amen.